as the story goes, he's being interviewed uh, on TV and a reporter asking, Mr. Wilkinson, what would you say is the contribution of football to physical fitness? And his answer was absolutely nothing. And he's asked for an explanation, and, and um, the reporter asked for an explanation. He said, well, I define football as 22 men on the field who desperately need rest and 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. <laughs> That's a great definition, you know? Uh, and, and now he, he would be really interested to, to notice that, you know, while we're eating nachos and uh, won't even walk across the carpet, you know, to, to change the channel, uh, watching TV, football on TV. But isn't, isn't it interesting? Uh, Today's challenge to us from the scriptures, and it's not just for people in uh, um, um, 600 or so or 700 or so BC. It's a challenge for us. It's to be more than spectators, to know what God requires of us. Now, it's really easy to drift into the thinking that a calling from God only applies to Marty and Matt or, or to David. Uh, David was in here a minute ago, uh, to those who are full-time in ministry. It's easy to kind of lapse into the thinking that a calling from God is only for them. But it wasn't only to Christian leaders that Paul addressed uh, when he wrote, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received in, in Ephesians 4. Now, but it goes on, it's older than that. I, I find this kind of intriguing. Way back uh, so you might think, well, this calling for us all to be uh, ministers in our own right. Um, um, have you ever seen a church that had kind of as their moniker, every member a minister? Okay. And you think, well, that's just a New Testament thing, right? That's Pauline or that's um, uh, something that Paul just started. Well, actually not. The admonition for us all to get involved goes all the way back at least uh, in a little bit of my reading goes all the way back at least to Exodus 19, to right before, the chapter before the Ten Commandments, when uh, literally Moses instructs them in the wilderness, um, saying, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's not just in First Peter. That comes back way back to Exodus 19. That goes way back to uh, 1500 B.C. So... Um, I think the intention all along was for us and for them and certainly for those in Micah's day to get it, that this life of following God, this life in our day of following Jesus is not, um, is not a spectator sport. It's not uh, you got your ticket, you show up, you, 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 know, you try to find a really comfortable seat and watch Jesus do his thing or watch those who are uh, uh, in ministry do their thing. So... Um, what I want us to kind of continue to deal with, and we'll be in this another couple of weeks till we get through, to get through um, uh, August, is what does living a life of justice mean for us today? What does it mean to follow God in our day? Now, uh, if you remember um, our previous study, uh, which, which has been a couple of weeks since we've kind of been in, in this area, that um, there has already been um, Samaria, in the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen. Uh, and, and the prophets like Micah begin to say to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you as well. It's pretty ominous. Now, interspersed with that is, um, 
is kind of this interesting thought. I want you to, if you're in Micah 6, I want you to turn back just a couple of pages here. Look at 312. All right. Here's this ominous prediction of Jerusalem. Therefore, on account of you, Zion, and that's a name, that's a euphemism for Jerusalem. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. What's the prediction? Destroyed. And by the way, we know from history that it actually was. Okay? He's dealing with from 100 years or so before that takes place. Now, but he also interspersed with that message has messages like uh, what begins in, um, uh, look at 4.1, okay, the very next chapter. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, Mary had already talked about the mountain, kind of Jerusalem, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Now, isn't it interesting that in one chapter he's talking about Jerusalem being flattened, and it seems like in this passage he's talking about Jerusalem being raised. Well, most biblical scholars, I believe, <coughs> believe what he was talking about here in chapter 4 was predictive of what happened in the second chapter of Acts. What happened? The church began. The new Jerusalem. Okay? What hap and what happened when the church began, what continues to happen, is people from all over the world stream into the church. You got that? Um, by the way, if you, if you don't get that, then next Sunday, um, or, or maybe you want to take a, do a little um, um, research project right after class, go stand at the southeast doors and watch people stream through the doors. It happens every Sunday here. I'm, and so this is not predictive of crossings, but crossings is certainly part of it. That the day of the church is coming. One of these days, he's saying, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but one of these days, the people will stream into the kingdom of God into the church that Jesus will purchase with his own blood. And he'll become, he'll become um, the bridegroom, and the church becomes the bride. You know that whole story. So kind of get this picture. Now, what we're going to deal with here, and I'm going to ask Bob to read verse 3, 4, and 5 from Micah 6 in a little bit. Did you hear me say a little bit ago we'll be in chapter 7 next week? Just kind of wanted you to know. We're going to spend a little time in Zechariah. I finished kind of my reading of the of the Old Testament prophets somewhere on an airplane at 30,000 feet this week. But um, um, we'll do, um, we'll do, uh, we'll be for a week or so in Zechariah, we'll, but I want us to kind of spend camp out in Micah for another week or so. So Micah 7 next week. Okay, now, um, we're going we're gonna to pick, pick up the story now in Micah 6, 3 in just a second. But what I want us to deal with here is that Micah has... There are a lot of ites around them. Uh, the inhabitants of uh, the, the kind of pagan nations around them. Um, you know, the Jebusites and the Malachites and you know, all those guys. They think that all the destruction is going to come from there. But what Micah is really dealing with is more of an internal issue. That the nation 
of Judah especially is kind of imploding. He's going to say the source of the crisis of my day, the reason why God's people are feeling the pain around them was not external but internal. The people who brought the most misery to the Israelites were the Israelites themselves. And so the Lord in chapter 6 is going to begin to kind of indict them like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom. And he's going to stop here uh, as, as, as Bob begins to read. He's going to kind of scratch his head a little bit. So Bob, read 3, 4, and 5, would you? My people, what have I done to you? brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you to the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Mike Miriam. My people remember what Balaam king of Moab wanted and what Balaam son of Bor answered. Remember your journey from Shield to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Okay. Now I'm going to hand out a couple of scriptures here so we'll have them when we get to it. Steve, can you talk today? Would you go see those references all in Joshua? We're going to go there in a minute. Can I get you to go to Joshua? And can I get uh, somebody to go to Numbers 28? Thank you, John. Let's, okay, we'll have some others along the way, but I want to be sure you guys are kind of over there by the time. Uh, and, John, we'll, we'll read a pretty good section of that number 28 passage there. Okay, now, remember I said the Lord um, kind of begins this whole thing. He's dealing with an accusation. Um, uh, and um, kind of like a prosecuting attorney, the people have become adversarial with the Lord. Is that a, is that a position you want to be in? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking I never want to be in a place where God and I are on opposite sides. You know? If, if we were doing team wrestling, I'd want Stan Harrison to be on my side. I just happened to see your face back there behind me. That, you know, he could, he could still take you down. Okay? If, if I'm going to do, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be, when I was at, at Midwest City, if, if I was going to put a football team together, I wanted Jody Farthing on my side. The biggest guy in school, you know. Played at OU later. All right? I don't want to be against the Lord. I don't want to be adversarial with him. Now, look back just for a second. Go to 2-8. So I'm walking you back just a couple of pages. Here's, here's how Micah talks about it. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You stripped the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by from those who turned to war. We looked at that one actually a few weeks ago. Um, look at 6-2, just up, up from where Bob started. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. The Lord has a case against his people. Can I get that? Even with the Lord, Israel will dispute. So there's this idea that, that the nation has taken on an adversarial role with the Lord, the Lord God. And it's just not a place where I want to be. But as the Lord begins to talk about this or to make his case against the people, do you notice his tone in verse 3 where Bob began to read? There is anger here. But it's not a seething anger. What, how would you describe verse 3? The tone of it. Puzzled. I'm sorry? Puzzled. Puzzled. Now, but Sally, is he puzzled because God lacks information? No. Now, 
there's always going to be easy, an easy answer to that, right? He never lacks information. He knows everything there is to know. But he begins this accusation with a curiosity about his, uh, about his own oppression. That's the only word I could think of to put in that line. Oppression of the people. They're, there's, they're kind of blaming God for their problems. Now, by the way, that ended in 600 B.C., right? People no longer blame God for their oppression or their problems. But, so he, you find God, he's kind of scratching. Well, I don't know that God has a head, but if he did, he was scratching it. And he's saying, I, help me here. I don't get this. Now, is it because he lacks information? And we've said no. Uh, what you, I want you to see here as he asks this kind of series of questions is the tenderness of God. Can I read it from the uh, New American Standard? My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you is the word. In the, if you're reading from the NIV, the word is burdened. How have I burdened you? Um, that same word is used uh, back over in the, in the book of Numbers. That same word in, uh, in Numbers 20 is used... Um, it's made, the, the verb is made into a noun here, and it's the word hardship when it talks about uh, the wilderness wanderings of the, of the nation of Israel. How have I created a hardship? Uh, do you kind of catch the tenderness of God? He's like a parent here. He's like a parent in a day when a child is making really wrong decisions, bad decisions. And Maybe you've been in the place that I've been across the table, or maybe it's been you who have said, where did I go wrong? Isn't he disappointed? There is some disappointment here, yeah. Okay, so I want, I want you to stay there for a minute. As this, as this eternal, heavenly Father who thinks over the plight of his people and they're blaming him for it. And he's saying, where have I gone wrong? It's really a tender question, isn't it? And the answer, um, uh, he doesn't ask the question because he doesn't have enough information. The question becomes kind of an accusation in its lack of an answer, okay? Are you kind of catching the spirit behind three? And so he's going to go on then in verse 4 and 5 to kind of deal with some history. All right. First of all, in verse 4, he's going to say the Lord has not abandoned his people at all. What does he cite? The Exodus. Yeah, the Exodus. He's going to say, don't you remember how I took care of you all that time? Don't you remember how you were in Egypt and I led you out? You were in bondage then. You think you're in bondage now? Huh? You're in bondage then, and I'm the one who got you out of there. In fact, the word here uh, that is used is the word is the word ransom or redeemed used in your, your Bible? Redeemed. Redeemed there is the idea of a ransom paid to Egypt for their release. What was the ransom that was paid? Blood. Bloodshed. Egyptian firstborn. Remember? By the way, what? This is not in my notes, so if I get this wrong, you know, don't, don't fire me as a teacher. 
what was the ransom that was paid for your release? Blood. Sinless, spotless blood. Okay, now, so God, I mean, have there been times in my life? Uh, you betcha. When God, I think, has said to me, what have I done wrong, pal? I paid for your release. You don't have to live like this anymore. We were talking this morning back here on the way in about where did we decide it was, Luke twenty two thirty one, 31? Where Jesus says to Peter that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you in your time of testing. So um, in my time of testing, I don't need to say, God, where were you? Or why didn't you get me through this? He's already paid that price. Okay, now... Uh, so, the Lord is not burdened. It's not because of his burdening them at all that this took place. And then he offers uh, some examples, some other further examples in verse 5 of his faithfulness. He's going to mention Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam. Now, what do we remember about Balaam? That one comes from um, uh, over in, um, actually, I think in... Um, in uh, the book of Numbers. But uh, what do we remember about Balaam and, and, uh, and the king of Moab, which I think his name was Barak, wasn't it? Remember that story at all? The Israelites are marching through there, and the king of Moab says, I don't like this. And so he contacts this kind of prophet preacher, Balaam, and he, the king of Moab, he wants him to go to Israel and curse them. Okay, And so uh, Balaam kind of, they offer him some good money to go do that. And he, he at least has the foresight to ask God about it. And God says, no, you're not going to curse my people. These people are blessed. You need to bless them. And so, uh, so he goes back to them and says, no, I can't do that. And they offer him more money. And he decides to go. Anyway. Well, do you remember who kind of stopped Balaam in his tracks? His donkey. Remember that deal? This is a guy with the talking donkey. <laughs> the donkey talks to him only after he's gotten a two before taken to him two or three times. He's got, they're on, you know, they're in an impasse. They're, they're between two kind of uh, rock formations. And there's an angel standing in front of the donkey that Balaam doesn't see. He's not spiritually perceptive enough at this point in his life to see that. And the donkey just stops. There's no place for him to go. And he eventually leans Balaam over against the wall, and he kind of hurts his foot. And so Balaam whacks the donkey again, and the donkey finally looks... I, I just love this picture. The donkey finally looks back and says, What are you doing? I've been carrying you for years. I, I probably don't need a talking donkey. It's probably not a, a uh, it's probably not, a, a, you know, kind of a pat on the back to my spiritual life if it takes a talking donkey to get my attention. <laughs> That's Balaam. That, he, and he talks about how the Lord delivered them through that period of time. Well, there's another one, and here's where I want Steve to read to us uh, from, from the book of um, um, Joshua, okay? Um, there's something that happens here. Uh, Read, um, and, and he meant it here in verse 5, it talks about from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, you and I, not knowing those places, you know, it would be, okay, we're talking about from El Reno to Yukon. No, we're not talking about that. 
There's specific things that are happening here. Read 3.1, Steve. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from the tents and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Okay, now where you and I kind of need to catch this is they're camped out on the, I've got to get my geography right, they're camped out east of the Jordan. Okay, camped out east of the Jordan. All right, Steve, would you go forward now and read 419? I'm taking them out of order on purpose. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan to camp at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. Okay, now, what you got to catch here is in, in chapter 3, they're on the east side of the Jordan. In chapter 4, 19, they're on the west side of the Jordan. What happened in between? The Corps of Engineers came and built a bridge. That's, that would be Ted's answer, Jackie. He was a Corps of Engineers. The, the Corps of Engineers came and built a bridge. No, that's not exactly what happened. Now, Steve, read the, read the middle portion. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal? The Lord made the Jordan River stand up like a heap so we could cross it. You catch that? Not until the priests put their tippy toes in the water. And the water stood up. The, the greatest event in the history of Israel was the Red Sea crossing. And this has to be number two. Millions of people crossing the river without getting their sandals wet? On dry ground. On dry ground, without getting their sandals wet. At flood stage, Wayne. What happened between... I'm sorry. It wasn't even muddy, no. In fact, they came back and built an altar. Joshua had some guys come back and build an altar in the middle of it. Kind of above it. So when the river ran back over, they'd say, what's that? And he said, well, we built that when it was dry. So what happened between Shittim and Gilgal? God showed up, right? I got to ask you have, you, have you done this kind of an inventory lately? Where you look back and said, I was here and now I'm here. What happened between here and here? And I'm going to guarantee you, if, if what was going on, David, thanks for our time together this week. But you described a time to me where things were not good. And things are really good. Now, what happened in between those two times? God showed up. I, I think you were telling me that. What happened? 
How did I get here? Well, I was just really smart. <laughs> How did I get here? Well, I was really shrewd. How did I get here? Well, you know, the, the dominoes just fell the right way, right? How did I get here? I rolled the dice and they came up sevens. Come on. Somewhere between your yesterday and your today, God showed up. Didn't he? No wonder sometimes God scratches his head. If he hadn't, I don't know. No wonder God sometimes scratches his head and says, why are you blaming me? I'm the one who showed up. It's not God who's unrighteous here. He's never unrighteous. He's done the righteous thing in your life. Could it be that the jam I'm in is of my own doing? Is of my own making? Yes. Yeah. 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 He was. Uh, you know who I think of when I think of that story? I think of Jack Nicholson. And I think of uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, God in a Jack Nicholson voice saying to Moses, Moses says, I want to see your face. And, and God says, You want to see my face? And he says, You can't handle it. You know, I, I, uh, uh, I, I kind of get that. You know. Lots of you have seen that same movie, haven't you? Okay. Now, let's go on to verse, verse 6. Uh, God is going to now say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. Okay. Um, Rhonda has forgiven me. I need your forgiveness. Okay. Because I was not in town during her birthday this week. Just the way the, the, you know, the way it rolled, and I had n multiple cards positioned in the house, and I brought gifts back from where, I, you know, all that kind of deal. We talked a lot, but I couldn't be here on her birthday, which that's never happened, and I didn't like it, but it was kind of the way it had, had to happen. But one of the things that I struggled with with this birthday was I just couldn't get her to really to tell me what she wanted. You ever been there? Yeah, you, you got someone in your life that kind of. Uh, they know what they want, but they don't know how to tell you what they I, I don't know how that works. But I asked her for the last month, what do you want for your birthday? I don't know. So if you're in a position today like they were, saying, what does God want from me? What I want you to, what do I want you to know is verse 6, 7, and 8 of Micah 6 are going to tell you what God wants from you. Okay? You don't have to wonder. It's not a mystery. The Israelites couldn't claim ignorance. It couldn't be, you know, I got you this, and what you really wanted was this. Ralph, I'm still working on that, okay? Uh, I, I bought you this, but, okay, now you're telling me you wanted that instead, but you told me you didn't know what you, okay. <laughs> not true with God. He's going to let us know. Somebody read verse 6, 7, and 8 to us out loud. Offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my 
There's the answer. It ought to break you up a little bit. Now, his questioning to begin was, what do I want from you? Is it? And he begins to suggest some things. Now, John, here's where I want you to go to number 28. Um, is it lambs and rams and calves and oil? Read the first three verses of Numbers 28. That's what he's referring to. The Lord said to Moses, give this command to the Israelites and say to them, see that you present me at the appointed time the food for my offerings made by fire as an aroma of Say to them, this is the offering made by fire that you are to present to the Lord, two lambs a year old without defect as a regular burnt offering each day. Two lambs a day. So is it a couple of lambs a day? Is it, what do you need is 104 lambs a year. Did I get the math right? Okay. So is that what you want, God? Do I want a lot of lambs? Do I want, he at some point says, doesn't he in here, uh, as I heard Cindy reading this, um, a thousand rams. Now, what we're talking about there, if I'm not mistaken, a ram has his own flock. Isn't that, isn't that correct? So we're talking about a thousand flocks of sheep. Is that what God wants? Is that what he needs? Does he need um, a calf? Well, you know, a ram's good, a lamb's good, but calf's even better. Okay, on the day, on one day a year, they offered a bullock or a calf, along with lambs and rams. Well, maybe that will satisfy God, right? Well, how about an oil offering? And I'm not talking about, you know, black gold, Texas tea. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about olive oil. That, they, that was part of their subsistence. That's what they cooked with. That's what they made food with. And yet there was an oil offering. What about, what about gallons and ga a river of olive oil? Is that what he wants? Can he catch the rhetorical questions here? Okay. What I, what I read implied here in verse 7 is God is not impressed with numbers. He's not impressed with bigness. He's not impressed with the size of the offering or the number of lambs, rams, bulls, the river of oil. He's not impressed with any of that. If you're able to give a lot, that's good. But that's not what he's talking about there. He's not impressed with any of that. And so he gets this, kind of hangs us over this little bit of a precipice. In verse 7, and you start to say, oh, God, so, I mean, I, I put some references in there where, where other prophets are crying out, you know, the Lord's not impressed with your worship. He's not impressed with your gifts. So this is not, a, this is not just a Micah idea. So the question is then, what does God really want? And the answer is in verse 8, and it's one of the most important verses, I think, in the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, this was quoted during... President Harding's inauguration and President Carter's inauguration. Isn't it interesting that they were dealing with what does God want? What does it mean? And the answer are three. The answers are three. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Catch that? Now, it begins with Micah's challenge here addresses a person's actions and their motivations. So it's not just, I've got to do this, but I don't have to have my heart in it. Or it's not, I just had the right intention, but I didn't get the right thing done. It addresses both my actions and my motivation. Now, 
as I deal with the verse 2 in just a couple of minutes I got left, to be just and merciful may seem contradictory, don't they? To be just and merciful. We've kind of been dealing with this for the last several weeks. But the kind of justice is talked about here is God's kind of justice. It's not my kind of justice, which tends to run into judgment or judgmentality. We're not talking about that. We're talking about in the sense of to treat others as God would, as Jesus would, with that kind of justice. What does it mean to live or love mercy? Um, what does it mean to just love mercy? I, I, I need to apologize to you about something I have said over the last several weeks. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced that I'm right, but I've got to get the attitude right, the motivation right. I walked in downtown Union Square in San Francisco one day this week, and, um, and I'm, I'm dealing with, and I've said to you, you know, we're asking for justice and all these other things. Where's the justice going to come? When is the justice going to come for the 55 million babies who have been aborted in this country since 1973? And I walked into a pro-abortion rally in, in downtown San Francisco. Not, not literally in a building. It was out on a street corner. And I'm just thinking, okay, there's a, there's a whole different agenda. That, and, and I know there is. I know there is. And what I'm realizing is that if I'm going to live not only justly, which is my call for justice, and I think it's right, I've also got to be incredibly merciful to those who have found themselves caught up in that sin. And I've met them. And I've just forgotten that. And I've, I've forgotten to tell you about that. Where I've met the woman who at age 19 didn't see any other way out. And now she deals with that. Every, now forgiven. Has trouble forgiving herself. By the way, that's another kind of a victim. In this blight on our society. But I want you to know. That God can forgive anything. Can't he? We just got to know it. So I, I want not only to act justly, to live not judge, judgmentally, but justly, and to love mercy, and then to walk humbly. I think it's interesting here that he, he talks about in verse 8, he t has told you, O man, what is good, to walk humbly. The idea here um, um, in, in one of the translations I read calls man mortal here. I've got to realize that I am mortal and he is not. And i got to realize that apart from a relationship with God, walking with him to act justly and to love mercy are impossible. Apart from walking with him every day. Okay, so here's my last thought. You remember that, um, that commercial, and I forget what financial advisor it is, but that commercial where, uh, where they're trying to get all the way to retirement and through retirement and... Um, and a green line magically appears, and it's like, got to stay on the green line. Here's your green line, okay? Ask him how to live this way. I, I was, uh, again, 30,000 feet Friday night, and, and, um, and, I, and I realized that I'm listening to a song that you would never listen to on my headset, and... Um, because it's a very, it's a group that's very hard rock, and um, uh, I'm just trying to stay awake. 
Ken starts to wake up and go to sleep when I get home. I got home like one o'clock and uh, yesterday. Could it be, and I, and I had this thought, could it be that someone is getting the best of you? Yet anyone lately get the best of you? Maybe it's a driver in traffic, or maybe it's uh, somebody at work, or, or maybe it's somebody in your family just getting the best of me. Could it be that somebody's getting the best of you because God is not getting the best of you? Could it be? Could it be that someone is getting the best of you because he is not getting the best of you? And I begin to ask myself that question. Am I not, now that I've received him, do I occasionally venture off the green line? I'm glad he's forgiving. I'm glad that sometimes when I'm too far off the green line, he works a new will and gets me back on some uh, actually dif different path. But I'm just asking you, uh, if you're looking for verses to memorize and if you don't ever memorize scripture, this might be a good time to start. You know, I know you can do John 3.16, okay, I get that. I know you can do John 11.35, Jesus wept, you know, okay, I get that. <laughs> Micah 6.8 might be a good one to commit to memory. Not because memorizing Scripture is going to save you. Not because even all these things that it commends us to do are going to save you. You've already had that salvation. But because this is a great green line for life and righteousness. Okay. Chapter 7 next week.